gone. I wish it was live and let die. <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here for another thrilling, tantalising episode of the Bond Daft Project. Film number 22, Quantum of Solace. I'm joined remotely, as per usual, with my fellow Bond aficionados, Francis Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. Steve McCall. A very good afternoon to you all. And Gordon Webster. Good afternoon, Mr. Barry. Good afternoon to you all. It's been a wee while. I'm looking forward to this one. This is the last film that I have not seen. Uh, so, yeah, this will be fun. Uh, before we get into that, a very quick COVID-19 update. How are we all doing? Gordon, let's start with you. Yeah, doing good. Just really busy. I've uh, I've actually just finished um, listening to a Bond novel, well, the audiobook version of Colonel Sun, I finally finished, um, because you can actually access it free on YouTube, so um, it's there for anyone who wants to, to listen to it. Kind of old school novel, he was the, <clears throat> excuse me, it was by Kingsley Amos, he was the first um, author at, after Ian Fleming that took over the franchise, for well, in terms of the, the novels, and... He succeeded Ian Fleming after he passed away, and it was from 1968. It's quite down to earth, like old school. Um, it's, it's very, it's quite, I think he really went for the same sort of style as Fleming. It's quite dark in, in areas. That I'd recommend that. I've been quite busy with that and uh, working things like that. Uh, oh, I don't know if you heard um, Don Black released his autobiography. He was in the news a couple of days ago. Oh. He was, um, you might remember his name as being. Uh, writing lyrics for a good few of the the Bond title songs. Mm-hmm. He's just released his autobiography, and he was live in Sky News, and he, um, yeah, just giving us a bit of an insight into what it was like working with people like John Barry and some of the singers. And his latest one was "The World's Not Enough." I mean, he's been doing it for years. He must be in his eighties now. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think his first one was Dime- "Maybe Diamonds Are Forever," and um, yeah, he's. I think he did five, but yeah. Um, yeah, I've been quite busy. Yeah, and I wrote, um, obviously, a bonding article for the website. Um, so, yeah, tune into us on the World Wide Web, kapish.online. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah. I love good. I Thanks, loved, Steve. I loved your article, Gordon. My only quibble was the uh, the order placement that you've got. Uh, was it GoldenEye and Octopussy? Uh, it's the only one I would disagree with. But, uh, you know, other than that, stellar stuff. Really enjoyed it. Um <laughs> But, Anything anti goldeneye Oh yeah, <laughs> your skin. But I wasn't even been anti goldeneye at all because I said it's so good. I just said I think octopus is just a little bit with just the the multitude of stunt work. But yeah, it was nice to again have a, a look back, a retrospective. We're we're getting there, man. I mean, this is number twenty two, and we started this what just over a year ago. Yep, still going strong. It's it's been a nice journey. I know it's it's weird. We're we're in the twilight years of this podcast. Twilight years, I don't know. Twilight times of this podcast, uh, or the the Bond Daft project specifically. Uh, but yeah, we've uh, got two more after this one. All right then, Steve, how's things? Hello. Yeah, things have been good. Kind of, it's been a while since we've been here, so I've kind of been working bits and pieces uh what have i seen recently i've been kind of plowing my way through as usual this sort of documentary section of netflix 
watched an incredible one actually called Icarus. Oh. Uh, nothing to do with the sun weapon from Die Another Day, unfortunately. <laughs> That's what I tuned in for. But um, yes, yeah, so it's a filmmaker who <clears throat> sort of set out to make a documentary about anti-doping. Um, it was a big sort of cycling fan, Lance Armstrong fan, so set out to kind of have a, a little look at how that was working in that sport and kind of accidentally uncovered this massive widespread state-sponsored doping program in Russia and ended up flying the main scientists from Russia to America for protection when it all blew up. Absolutely. A documentary with a kind of Hollywood-style twist in the middle is just unbeatable. Yeah. Um, so that is well worth watching if you're into that kind of stuff, sports and uh, drugs. Yeah. Uh, I loved it. I, I, I did a feature article at the very beginning of this website, my top 10 films of 2017, and that was, I believe, in my top 10. I think it was like number eight or something. It was one of my favorite films from that year. It was All right. fantastic. Uh, I'll have to go back and read that. I didn't realize that was there. That's uh, shame on me for not having looked at the website. Uh, it's like it's an article from 2017, don't worry, man. <laughs> or 2018 when I probably wrote it, I think. Yeah. Uh, I was doing yeah. a catch-up of all the films, but... Uh, we had a debate podcast at the very beginning of the, uh, the and um, that one I think I watched after it and I was gutted that I'd watched it after it because I really would, would have fought to have that in the t- our collective top 10 but yeah really good film um, really insightful and it's amazing the, the sort of the way like you say that the twist happens and it's a real life twist you could not have planned that no exactly and as a journalist just massively jealous at this guy having one of the sort of biggest news stories of the year effectively fallen into his lap or kind of being in the middle of it by accident when it all blows up. Yeah. It's just the stuff of absolute dreams. Yeah. Um, but it's really well done. And the Russian scientist actually really, as a character, despite being a real person, comes across very likable and actually quite quite funny. Mm-hmm. And sort of, you want to be a mate of it. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really strange. The friendship that kind of strikes up between the filmmaker and the subject is just, it gives it a whole nother dimension, a whole nother level. Yeah. Which is, a sort of, as a sort of character, um, view is fantastic mm-hmm. um so yeah so that was fun beyond that i rewatched goldfinger which i think uh retains its rating from the time for being both iconic but misogynistic and dated <laughs> um so that was a good one i think that was on the poster wasn't it <laughs> four stars iconic but misogynistic yeah. <laughs> steve yeah capiche film casts yeah yep. Yeah. Um, well, during yeah. during one of the harder times of the the coronavirus, when we were all tuning into the news a lot, there was one of the former government ministers. Maybe I don't know if he was a former science officer. Was giving a really serious um, explanation of what we can expect live from his house. But he, there was a nice Goldfinger film poster right above his head, all <laughs> framed, and I wasn't taking in really anything he was saying. Just admit he's got good taste, obviously. Yeah, I haven't concentrated on a single news interview over the last two months because I've been too busy looking at the background at kind of what they've got and looking at their books and analysing their posters and their artwork and stuff. It's far more, far more yeah. fun than actually listening to the to the scientists. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, that's that's been me for the last few weeks. Excellent, good stuff. All right, Fran, what's been happening? Um, so yeah, I've been delayed in my move down to the Scottish borders. Kind of irritating, but it's it's not something that can be helped i think it's more um just a series of of events that couldn't have been predicted in terms of uh things being repaired and stuff like that so other than that i was watching well i discussed it on the thursday podcasts um 
I finished season three of True Detective, which I thought was was really good actually, and uh, as a more recent show with uh, a couple of quite subtle um, explorations into the idea of race and things like that in the police and and that sort of thing. But there was a bit that made me laugh out loud where the main character of season three, he's played by Marcella Ali or Maharshala Mah- Ali. Yeah, Maharshala Ali. Yeah. And then there's Stephen Dorff. He's great as well. But um, Ali's character <clears throat> at this point is an a, a old retired police officer and he's got... He's, he's kind of almost going senile, not senile, it's maybe dementia or something where he can't remember things and he's, he, he gets mixed up and all that kind of thing. But there's this young white female interviewer who says something, like he's in the kitchen with, with his son, so they're both in the kitchen and she's there, and she says something like, do you think that um, they didn't, didn't take you seriously at the time because of your race? And he said... Uh, no, what do you mean? And she said, oh, I'm just really interested in the idea of systemic oppression and racism. And there was this moment where the guy, like Ali and, and uh, his character and the son kind of looked at each other and smirked at each other as if, like, it, like it was kind of funny coming from this young white woman, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. They kind of looked at each other as if, what's she on about, you know? Like, like how could she possibly understand or even begin to question us about this sort of thing. It was like that kind of unspoken uh-huh. thing going on there, um, which I've never seen that that side of it presented in a show before. And it was, it, I thought it was really quite funny, and it was quite, it, it kind of put across how patronising someone can seem when they're tr- when they're trying to be well-meaning. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and they just moved past it. And the, the, in actual fact, the character. Ali's character actually had formed this incredibly good friendship with his partner, played by Dorf. And but the, but there were moments where, like, there was a moment where Stephen Dorf's character—it is Stephen, isn't it? Stephen yeah, yeah. Chet, um, his character got frustrated with with um, Ali's character and almost called him the N-word. Oh, that almost did it. But he was so angry with him, like he said, "I'll never say the word, but I just want you to know I'm thinking it." God. But it was like a moment of extreme betrayal between the two of them. Like something really big had happened, something terrible. Do you know what I mean? But um, then it, later on, like their their friendship then continued into being old men. You know, like in the reconnect, well, they reconnect later on. But I thought it was, I thought it was an incredible exploration of what it was like to be uh, a black police officer. And this the from cause it goes from nineteen eighty to nineteen ninety to twenty fifteen or whatever it is. You see different mm-hmm. phases of their lives, you know. Um, so does that season it, hold up then um, better than the second? Because I know that the second is famously quite a departure and seen as less critically reviewed anyway uh, as the first one, which was hailed as one of the best television. And you did say that as well, television series. Yeah. Out. Where does the third one sit with that? Is it still? Not quite as good up up there with the the first one. Still, I I would say that season two is the weaker of the three, but season three is still nowhere near as as incredible as season one. Mm-hmm. Like I would I don't want to I don't want to say that season three is equal to it just because it deals with certain issues. No, because it's, it's not as narratively interesting right. as season one. But I do think it deserves some discussion and credit for for that. Okay, you know, good uh, stuff. because. You know, it's it's just a shame. I feel sorry for the guys, all the actors who did season two and season three, because I feel as if, you know, it's almost like trying to follow up like the Beatles or something like that. Like, it's, you know, 
as another group of guys. Like, imagine if a band each album they replaced the band members. So, like, they just couldn't do the same. You know, it's just. Should they just but, have changed the name? They, well, I actually did that with season three. At, uh, after because we discussed it on the Thursday podcast, I actually went away and kind of started to think of, tried to think of it as just a different show, and I enjoyed it more when it wasn't as connected in my mind. But um, the other, so the other thing. I was watching, I won't say too massively much about it, because this is a Bond cast, but um, we, um, yeah, I mentioned it on the Thursday cast, but I was going to watch it, I started watching watching Mad Men again, an incredible study into, it's almost like a character study en masse into what it was like for people in the 50s, 60s, you know, as it goes through the different eras, so we're very much into the 60s in it now in season two, and it's you know it's kind of obviously you've got race women um but you've also it also shows you how hard it could be for men too in those days because all the men have got incredible health issues because they're all having to 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 appear to be um what they're supposed to be because everybody had to play a role in those days the men are having to drink all day and smoke all the time do you know what i mean like they if they don't do it you know they're seen as odd so that's quite interesting. Like the doctors are all smoking. The doctors are, but there's scenes where the doctors are saying, you know, um, you you can have some of the bad habits, but not all of them. There's these discussions taking place. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, but that's what it impresses me because talking about the issues of women and 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 um, minorities in the sixties, fifties, all that is very obvious, isn't it? So that's going on. But I like the fact that they've really delved into the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they're really looking at everyone who was alive then and what it was like and um, age, like the difference between generations, like people people in their 40s talking to folk in their 20s then, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting. I think it's fantastic. Excellent. All right, then. I think we should now talk about Quantum of Solace, the 22nd Bond film, as mentioned before. Uh, this is the second of Daniel Craig's Bonds in the new timeline since Casino Royale, a film that certainly lives up or tries to live up to the the heights of of Casino Royale. Um, and I think it's fair to say most critics don't seem to think it's met that expectation. So I haven't seen it. I can't personally say that. Um, I'm looking forward to, to watching it. Gordon, you want to kind of give us a little set up on this one? What what was the... I know this is the one that was affected significantly by the writer's strike. Um, yeah, you want to talk a little about the production for this film yeah it's one of the ones i've seen the least so i'm not brilliantly qualified to talk about it but uh yeah i saw this when it came out in the cinema and it's it's actually continuing the story thread from casino almost i think and that it's continuing it's meant to be just a short moment after the last film ended and you know we've not really seen that with a bond film in the last time i can remember a, an actual sort of sequel type film and a, an obvious continuation is maybe like Dr. No One to From Russia With Love but um, yeah Bond is, is kind of still haunted by the death of Vesper and the um, just finding out why she had to betray him like that and he wants to to um, to find out who these mysterious people are that are behind her who Mr. White works for and um it turns out it's uh, it's an organisation called Quantum that is somehow behind a lot of the events of the first film, and Quantum is somehow linked to a billionaire or millionaire called Dominic Green, and he's somehow working 
um, to try and help an exiled Bolivia in general, I think it is, in exchange for something. So it sounds like it's one of these kind of another sort of conspiracy with a wealthy man, which we've we've seen a number of times. And yeah, it's, it's Bond, Bond's just trying um, just to find out to get to the bottom of all these events from the first film, which is it's pretty exciting, like I said. And this is a story thread that I think still still continued in a sense right through to Spectre, and it's still it's said to be continuing with No Time to Die. So I, so Daniel Craig's back for his second film. Like you said, Steve, such a huge success with Casino that I think there was a lot of pressure on them. Really affected by the writers. Nice to see a Bond film coming out just two years after the last one. That's like the old days where we used to get a film every couple of years. And Dominic Green is the the main villain, played by Matteo Amalric, and Olga Kurilenko plays Camille, and Gemma Arterton, the English actress, plays Strawberry Fields, a, a nice Fleming-esque name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, oh, and also, they got the title, I think, yeah, really severely affected by the, the writer's strike. I think Neil Purvis and Robert Wade were involved, but because of the writer's strike, they they somehow had some unfinished story. And Michael Wilson ended up involved in a lot of the writing process. And even, I think, to some extent, Daniel Craig. And uh, way on in the production, Wilson took the title, Quantum of Solace, from one of Fleming's short stories. It was in the, the short story collection for your eyes only. And I have read it, but I don't really remember much about it because I don't think a lot happens. It's one of these ones, I think, Bond is it, is it some sort of private dinner with some other wealthy people and he gets told a story about some some millionaire and his downfall or something like that it's and not a lot happens that's all i remember but it's just a title that gets taken and nothing else because by this point we've obviously exhausted a lot a lot of the original flame material i would say also actually i think that i think in an ideal world the like Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson wanted they wanted to somehow bring back Spectre. I mean, they'd been wanting to do that for years, especially once once they rebooted the franchise. But I think ideally this would have been a film where Spectre would start to emerge again. But again, they couldn't do it because Kevin McClory was still in the background, and there was still even this would be two thousand eight. I mean, you think the whole Thunderball debacle was in nineteen sixty one, sixty two, so they still couldn't use the Spectre. Anyway, I think that's why um, that's why. The organization Quantum is used, and I think to a lot of people, it's maybe it maybe seems as if it might have been a bit thrown in there. I don't know, but of course we we'll, we know what hap- after this film though the thread continues. So we'll, it'll be interesting, like I said, just to see this uh, like an actual story, th- I can a bit more continuation in Bond, which we never really got a lot of mm-hmm. in the past. Yep, a uh, couple of things then before we go uh david arnold returns as the composer um we've also got a dual uh theme song uh jack is it jack white and alicia keys together which is interesting it's again the first for the franchise and like you said daniel craig actually did try and help out on the script it was only him and the direct i think there was a loophole where the director were allowed to continue writing for the on the script during the writing the uh, writer's uh, strike and so Daniel Craig had to sort of chip in and he did say it was quite difficult for him not something he's ever used to doing um, so yeah it's, it's definitely quite a, a troublesome production overall there was some stunt uh, a couple of stunts I think maybe went wrong uh, there was people a lot of the press apparently were saying things like it, there was a curse 
just listing a few things that I mean, it started off when Daniel Neil, uh, Daniel Craig like lopped a tiny part of his top of his fingernail off, and they were sort of grouping that in as part of the curse when people were getting hurt and things like that. And he said that was ridiculous. But yeah, so a lot of a lot of stuff went on. We'll uh, talk about it in more detail once we come back. I think that's us good to go. I am, like I said, looking forward to this. It's going to be uh, it's for the first seeing a film, a Bond film, with uh, definitely knowing I haven't seen the full film. And it's also a short film as well, which is uh, apparently something that the director um, wanted to do. Mark Foster, I think. I'm just going to get that check that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Mark, I think. Well, yeah, I was going to say I think he wanted to kind of strip it down to an extent. He didn't want to go with the the usual sort of megalomaniac, psychotic mm-hmm. villain. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think he felt that Casino Royale was a little too long, so he wanted to make make a much pacier, brisk film. Um, budget. Uh, 200 to 300, uh, 200 to 230 million. It made a whopping 589 million, I think that's. So, again, a big success. It was, uh, I think, still is one of, I think, the fourth most successful of the franchise overall, or something like that. So, commercially, certainly did well, but, uh, let's, let's go and watch it now. Come back and give our spoilerific thoughts on Quantum of Sauce. Bye bye. And we are back from having watched Quantum of Solace. What do we all think of this one, gents? Let's start with Gordon for the first... Uh, what's your first thoughts on this one? I enjoyed it, Steve, yeah. I think I, I liked the um, stripped-back feel of this film. I thought there was a lot of elements that were very Fleming-esque, and in a lot of ways it felt like one of the novels. And there's, um, there's elements you feel like you're in classic Bond territory. I know I bring this up podcast after podcast, but I think the likes of the opera scene—that's that's the that's the setting that suits Bond's character, especially from the full dinner jacket and the, the fact he's getting one over on his enemies and that full thing. I thought I really liked that, and I feel I'm—I mean, I did feel a lot of it was too fast-paced. I, I like the fact it was quite a concise film. I, Felt it was refreshing to go back to, you know, keeping it keeping it tight, but uh, maybe some of the action a bit too fast at times. And some, you know, I was I felt like I was waiting a long time in that film to actually see Bond act like a spy, though. Although I feel it was, it felt it felt like kind of stripped down in terms of the settings. Um, Bond, um, the fact he's got. He's got um, allies that are that actually turn out to be moles. It was rooted very much in the spy world, but I feel that it was more like at times it felt more like action hero Bond rather than the fact we were watching actual spy. I felt like I was I spent a lot of the time, a lot a long time waiting for him to actually act like a spy. Maybe like until the halfway through the film, I think like the this and I'm the first person to spot bad CGI, but. I don't think there was a, there wasn't really any really bad obvious CGI, but I feel like see the quick the quick cuts. I think I, I wonder at times was part of the reason is to so the the CGI isn't too blatantly obvious. But I mean, I enjoyed it in some ways. I feel I feel some people can be a bit hard in this film when they're when the when the likes of films like Diamonds or Forever maybe like walk away scot free, whereas some people have the nights out for a film that's actually very much rooted in the the 
the Bond universe. I, you know me. I mean, I, I like. To, I would like. I'd love to see a gun barrel at the start. I would like to see a bit more of the Bond theme. But you know, I, I enjoyed the film. Refreshing as well because it's not one that I've overindulged myself in too much over the years. Partly because it's quite new. So it's probably, this is probably about my my fourth or fifth viewing. But yeah, all, all good. Yeah, cool. Uh, Fran, what what was your thoughts on Quantum of Solace? Well, I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. I remember going to see it in the cinema at the time. I actually went on a date to see it, and I had said to the girl, oh, Casino Royale was great, I can't wait to see this, and then we went in and saw it, and it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really so good <clears throat> at the time. But watching it this time, it was a mixture of things that frustrated me and things that I really enjoyed. So there were a number of, of scenes with Bond showing true brutality and coldness and all that kind of thing, like where he's, there's a scene where he kills someone and he kind of holds their arm up so that they bleed out faster and he just sort of dispassionately stares off, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I love that sort of thing. Um, but the I was getting frustrated with the, the endless chase scenes. It just seemed like a big long... There was a, a whole section at the start of the film. Well, right up to actually when... Because they, they had a car, a, two car chases, didn't they? It was it was the first act was full of action scenes peppered in between a, the odd few dialogue right. scenes, but then it was a strange mix to have it so front heavy, and then it kind of tapered off a little towards the end. But there was still well, action peppered throughout the film, actually. But um, yeah, it seemed to go from car chase to boat chase to plane chase. You know, there was all the different kinds of like on foot chase. You know, it was like the evolution of film chases, the documentary or something. <laughs> but um, I, I I liked the bits I enjoyed. I enjoyed the ongoing communication with MI6 and M throughout the film. I enjoyed the fact that the other Bond girl, so to speak, Fields, I enjoyed that she wasn't, in the end, actually meant to be there to help him on his mission. Um, there was some realism there that she, you know, she got caught up in this and killed. Uh, I liked... Uh, the, I liked the the references to Casino Royale and that thread of plot going on and the little musical motifs that were coming over from that movie, and I enjoyed. I actually quite enjoyed the end. I enjoyed the end more than I thought I would. Um, it was kind of like watching a student block of flats being blown up. I mean, it was kind of that's what those that building looks like to me. It looked like just some sort of modern student accommodation getting blown to kingdom come yeah. that's not why i enjoyed it that's just coincidental <laughs> that it looked like that but I, I, I did like the i liked the plot i liked the fact that it was to do with corruption and um regime change uh you got to see the dark side of the spy world particularly the americans getting involved in that sort of thing and i did like i liked the end as well i liked the fact that you know there's that moment where you think like what's the actress's name that played um and get, God, what what even is her character name? Uh, um, the Bolivian um Secret Service agent Camille, that that's Olga Kirilenko. Ah, uh, yeah. So she 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 was excellent. Yeah. She was really yeah. good. And I, and I, I, I you know, I did think that um you know, that scene at the very end where she she's huddled up in the room as it's burning and, and you think it's about to end, it was very um very well done. And a, another final little bit, the Canadian spy Corinne at the very end. I've, I, I had forgotten all about that little scene where Bond reveals to her that the guy she's dating is kind of casing her, basically, and using her. 
I've never felt more sorry for someone, mm. <laughs> you know, unexpectedly. Like, just the look on her face as she realises she's been used and she quietly gets her stuff and leaves. I just thought, God, I feel really bad for her, you know? Yeah. But it, there was, it was a strange one. There was so many excellent bits in it. But there was also so many bits in it that I just was sitting there like, oh, I wish this chase would end. Mm. Yep. Okay. I certainly wasn't disappointed by it the way I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm still you... loving your background. You're dancing into the fire there like Duran Duran. I know. Gra- I know. You gradually, you bits of you keep kind of falling apart to like. Yeah, it's when you lean, <laughs> you lean back, you disappear into the fire. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually a metaphor for my life, but it's yeah. me falling apart. Yeah. So, uh, okay, okay, Steve, what was your thoughts on this one? I agree. There was a lot to enjoy about that one. Um, as I've mentioned in many of these reviews, my major hang-up with the entire Bond series comes, or stems, I should say, from Diamonds Are Forever and how it wasn't the sequel to Honor Majesty's Secret Service that I wanted it to be, which I think is another reason why I like this one. It was the same with License to Kill. It was a sequel that I wanted to see this was the sort of perfect lead-on sequel to Quantum of Solace, which we all enjoyed so much. It was Bond's out for... Oh, it's Casino Royale. Still, Casino Royale, sorry. Um, out for revenge. Um, on the mission as he should be, but still out for revenge, trying to um, get over the lost love that was killed in the previous film. Um, but yeah, a lot to enjoy about this. A lot of the... Despite the fact that those writers strike at the time, a lot of the dialogue in this was fantastic. Um the scene with Bond and him in the hotel room when they discovered that Fields was dead. Um, there was another conversation that I um, took a note of that was particularly good. Um, I'm sure it was the bad guy, Dominic, signing the contracts in the hotel made entirely of fuel cells. Just little sort of conversations that stood out. It was uh, stood out for me as going, wow, that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the soundtrack to this film the music right the way through including that incredible theme tune yeah. was i thought brilliant in this film there were tiny little bits of humor in this film but every single one of them with me anyway landed i liked that particularly um and i loved i loved dominic in this the villain the fact that he was kind of low-key he wasn't absolute sort of megalomaniac he was sort of that sort of low-key psychopathic menacing sort of nutter type bad guy which I really enjoyed, which is a shame because what spoiled this film for me entirely was the cinematography. It was the shaky point of view camera consistently right the way through. That I was just going to say, actually, particularly interesting what you said about the the similarity, the vengeance factor and license to kill, because I was especially feeling it, although a lot of the film you could um, maybe... You might have forgotten about the thread from Bond wanting to get get vengeance for Vesper, but right at the end there, it was almost like in License to Kill when he when he dealt with Green, and he then returned. He went to the flat in is it Kazan? Uh, he went to Russia and he sort of chased up the like to Vesper. That was almost like the sort of payoff with Sanchez at the end of License to Kill because for a lot of that film you were. Um, caught up in the action and stuff and then it's reminding you right at the end it's kind of tying up the loose end but did you feel that a bit like particularly at the end there i felt it a lot yeah um i mean i got a lot of dalton vibes from this film which i think is another another reason why i particularly enjoyed it mm-hmm. yeah 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 it was violent this was a violent film yeah. Um, yes yeah 
Was there anything else you wanted to point out, Steve, before you? Um, I was trying to think where I was on a thread, and I'm trying to remember where it was. I like I like a bit of shaky point of view camera work in a film. I think it, it works really well for really kind of getting you into what the the main character at that time is seeing and really bringing you into the action. But when it's overused to that extent, the eye, to the extent that your eyes are kind of rolling about the stage, mm-hmm. or sorry, rolling about the screen, I should say, it's it's just difficult to focus. And it's a distraction when you're trying to pick up on bits of dialogue or what's happening, sort of particular key moments. It, it just makes for really difficult to focus. So I think I felt it was that particularly that kind of ruined it. No, I wouldn't say ruined as such, but it spoiled it somewhat for me. It made it more difficult to watch. Yeah. And as Fran has pointed out, as I think we all pointed out, the amount of chases was kind of unnecessary. It felt a bit like a bit of filler. As you mentioned, there was a writer's strike going on, so I wonder to what extent it went right. We need to fill a block of time. Let's have someone chasing Bond. <laughs> um, it was, I mean, it wasn't quite J.W. Pepper, but it was almost that kind of thinking and it's a shame they could have they could have filled it with something better because what that film was for me I think was loads of little diamonds in a kind of sea of rough. Mm. Um, I mean it was overall enjoyable. So I there's there's a lot to enjoy about this this yep. film absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, the 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 sort of it felt like there was references directly and indirectly to previous Bond films. Uh, Goldfinger was certainly a very direct one, with the uh, death of Gemma Arterton's character, uh, Strawberry Fields, who never is actually mentioned as Strawberry Fields. It's just Fields, which is probably for the best. But uh, yeah, so and then the, the license to kill vibe definitely I like that about it. And Gordon, you picked, you mentioned how it does feel like a Bond novel, and having read Casino Royale. Yeah, it completely is like that. The going back to M and the sort of dealings with MI6, that, that felt like what Fleming did in, in that book at least. Um, and reminding you of what they're doing in the story as well. And I think Bond's kind of uh, the journey that he goes on, the sort of violent uh, um, revenge story, uh, we don't get it often. And I, I do like it. It does feel like the sequel we should have got for Diamonds Are Forever. Um. So yeah, that, those are very much things I liked. The action at first I loved. I thought it was gripping. Wait to start. It was overused, especially at the beginning, to the point that I've never been bored in a chase scene. Normally, it doesn't tend to happen. Usually, they're usually exciting moments, but there was moments where I could feel. I was like, "Why is this guy getting chased again?" I, I kind of lost. What was the What was the purpose of this? This. I kind of went on a little. It was very violent. I like. Uh, I can appreciate that, and some of the stunts were fantastic. It's a shame that once you overuse something, it dilutes it a little. Um, but the music. Uh, we'll, I wanted. We'll go into that in more depth. But I think the music was fantastic. Here, there was little moments. I was just like, wow, very subtle. Uh, so yeah, and yeah, a decent villain. Uh, a couple of villains. Um, so they're different. I would say they weren't like your stereotypical Bond villain. Um, and there was no issues of where it has dated as such. Like I, I can't think of anything that was obvious that I, I was cringing in, in, it, in terms of the writing or the portrayal of um, minorities and, and women and things like that. There was nothing like that. And it was a short, brisk film. I'd say to its detriment, the the the, ed, the quick cuts. I definitely agree, Steve. Um, so yeah, okay. Let's start with the pre-title sequence then. A short one, and obviously after having watched uh, was it Die Another Day and The World Is Not Enough, that was quite welcome. 
considering they were like half an hour or something they felt like that well this was quite short quite brisk uh action sequence yeah they didn't yeah. mess about they um within seconds you had a car chase and a gun shootout i thought that was quite there was there was no kind of um set up or anything like that. I'm still not entirely sure why that chase was happening. I don't know if they explained that at all. I think it was but... just after he'd captured Mr. White and he was... Ah, uh, that's right. So he was in the boot. Yeah, now God knows what Mr. White was going through in the boot. I mean, imagine <laughs> being in the boot during that raid. Just pulverised, you know. Yeah, that's kind it's of also... sort of like what made it, I think, because it's, it's the, the, end, the line at the end um, he says to time to get out and he's just been absolutely thrown about all over the place. You know that that's that's kind of a beautiful moment, and it's like the and very much like some of the classic Bond films. It's the perfect entrance to the title sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I also quite like that was the only line in the pre-title sequence. There was no dialogue. It was just bang yeah. action. Apart from the the little bit of what was annoying me, the sort of bit of product placement that stuck out with the guy quite obviously going there was an Aston Martin being chased by two subs. <laughs> you almost expected, uh, you know. Seventeen nine nine five on the roads, MOT tax, etc. And it just that was a bit. Terms that was and a conditions apply. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Or um, you could have had small print at the bottom saying, "Do not, please, do not actually do this with your car." Yeah. You know, when yeah. you buy it. There was, uh, exactly. I never noticed a lot of the product placement. It usually does go over my head. But uh, I was reading about it. This film did have quite a, a large budget from the different. Sponsors, I think, even more than Diamonds Are Forever. Well, some of it was Scott quite. Erickson must have paid for about seventy percent of that film. Yeah. I mean, sorry, the last four films, I should say, three or four at least. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mind it so much. I guess if it's, I mean, I actually found the Virgin Atlantic one quite funny because it was it was taking Bond very much into the real world. Him and Matthias having this conversation in a lounge that you know, if we had enough money, we could end up in there. You know, getting your drinks served to you. So there's kind of a. There's, there's a certain element of Bond is using things that we would use, yeah. you know, or or travel in ways that we might travel. Uh, you know, there's a there's an element there to it, but it's I think it is where it feels like an advert. Now, if someone looks at the screen of a phone, it's just looking at the screen of a phone. But yeah, I think it's the the police wouldn't usually give that. Le- I mean, was that guy some sort of car expert or something? I mean, police wouldn't usually give that level of description, would they? They'd say. We have a grey car. You know, they wouldn't say that, would they? Um, I think they'd go for. They, they would probably give the make of the car, but they'd yeah. give a lot more detail other than just purely the uh, the specific makes of the uh, of the cars. It, it just stood out as a little strange. Yeah. Well, can I just say that it was you? You mentioned Fran about the scene with Bond and Mathis having a drink after twenty one films. Films. I think it's the first time we see Bond getting hammered. Actually. It looks like he's a he's a little bit bluttered at that scene when he's leaning in the bar. Mm-hmm. I, I think it would have been <laughs> a, an interesting character piece because I think the film was trying to humanise Bond a bit more than they ever have. But I think it would have been actually interesting if they delved into that. They actually had a few more scenes where he was really struggling. Well, I think um, that's I think that's where this Craig Eras goes. Yeah, that's basically yeah. the you know so we're yeah. seeing hints of it here. You know, this is what's interesting about the film is that it ends. You know, with this kind of digging into Spectre a bit more, but the next film very much goes away from that, and we have a bit of a break from it, and then it goes back again, doesn't it? Later, well, Spectre kind of retcons the story of Skyfall a little. I think does Spectre not try and kind of make them all fit? Like it has a story that tries to kind yeah. of make them all fit, where Skyfall clearly wasn't really intended at the time. I don't think to 
to to lead into the same story. Uh-huh. I'm yeah. going to be interested when I see Skyfall to think how it could possibly fit into the whole thread, given that the time it was kind of a standalone one. But I found, see, when I watched Quantum this time, it wouldn't have been like this, obviously, when I saw it when it was new at the cinema, but I kept having it in the back of my mind. Remember, Quantum is essentially meant to be, sorry if I'm spoiling this, but it's essentially like a feeder organisation for Spectre. And I was just thinking, does it fit? But from, from what I could see watching it today, it worked for me, thinking that I think it's a beautiful idea that you think this is the organisation behind everything bad that's happened to you in the last year or two, but and you you then think once you destroy quantum, it's over. But I'll not go too much into that because we you know we want to see Spectre first, but um, we know why, or at least part of the reason why they didn't have Spectre included in this film. But I felt that that gives it an extra edge. I think knowing that that. Ultimately, there could be a plot behind the plot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, well, that, that's the thing is that, um, you know, they're very much even in No Time to Die from the trailers. You can see that it's tied up to this story. I mean, there's um, characters completely, you know, connected to Mister White, for example, that are yeah. that are present through, um, throughout the whole lot. So it is, you know, there there is something. There, but I, I do think it's interesting to look at the end of Quantum of Solace and think to yourself, what might have been had they chosen a slightly different direction, and just ca- carried on with that plot with the next movie rather than Skyfall. But yeah, I mean, I think the, one of the problems with Quantum of Solace is that I don't think they really knew what they wanted it to be. Did they want it to be a connecting film? Did they want it to be a sequel to Casino Royale? Um, it, it never quite. It wasn't either. It wasn't a standalone either. It wasn't any one of the. It, it tried to be a number of things, I think, and it wasn't really any of them. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I could completely see that. It, it, it's, there's something lacking about it, isn't there? I don't know what it is. There's something not yeah. quite like as direction. Well, I, yeah, I maybe like it, I, there's many things I can say that I liked about it. The music, all these things I mentioned at the beginning, but there is there is something is missing from it. I don't know if it's something like really original and iconic that everyone would the way that you you when you look at the older bond films certain images will always the golden gun and the moonraker well everything in moonraker really um and and certain certain villains and and there's just something something kind of generic about it as as much as i like it see i can tell you what it is though I mean, I, I can tell you if you if we look back to Casino Royale, right? The most satisfying stories are clear. Casino Royale is a story about James Bond dropping his guard and falling in love, and then and then it all goes wrong at the very end, right? That's a very clear A B C story, right? All of the rest of it happens all around it, but it's it's incidental to that clear through line of what the story is to the movie and to the book as well. I mean, it, you know, it's very much there for this film. What is the story? Is it the story of the girl wanting revenge on the general? Is it the story of Green's thing? Is it the story of Spectre or Quantum or whatever that is? Is it, you know, it's, 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 I mean, is it the story of Bond and M trying to gain trust again? Is Bond, you know, is it the story of Bond going off the rails revenge? They didn't pick a, an ace fucking story for it to, there wasn't that ABC, like, just, this is what the story of the film is. You hit the nail on the head there. I think it is. It's. It was. It was so confused. There wasn't a solid plotline. You only discovered what the villain was actually trying to do in the last sort of late into the last quarter of the film when you established that he was withholding water and trying to commoditize that, and everyone thought it was oil and stuff like that. 
but there was no one storyline was kind of given prominence. Yeah. You had Bond trying to get revenge, but you also had the Bolivian girl trying to get revenge. You also had the sort of quantum organization, which you saw elements of in that opera scene where they all kind of stood up and walked out. But then that wasn't really followed up on all those characters that they suddenly introduced you to as being part of this organization suddenly kind of fell by the wayside. And then you've obviously got um, the sort of the Americans, the CIA coming in and doing their part. There was a the regime change part. There was a hell of a lot going on in this film. And it's it's almost like there was so much that nothing was memorable. So yeah. I think there's if you grind down into this film, there's lots of great individual elements. But when you try and look at it as a whole, I mean, I've mentioned before about films that you can just kind of turn on and watch and enjoy yourself. You can't watch, I don't think, Quantum of Solace without a lot of background knowledge, without at least having watched um, Casino Royale. And before that, almost having knowledge of how the previous Bond universe worked before the reboots. It requires a lot of kind of detailed background information, which if if you require a sort of knowledge to start off with and you're doing a lot of thinking while you're watching, it kind of takes away from the enjoyment where sometimes you just want to kick back and watch some stuff blowing up. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing. I mean, the, you've got the ancient... Uh, the Telling stories is an ancient human activity. We tell stories in a way that we've done it for so long that our minds are almost conditioned to enjoy stories that are structured in a particular way. We, we You know, humans would sit around campfires and tell word-of-mouth stories about heroes and things and villains and all these sorts of things and gods and... I mean, you know, there's the old kind of cliche that everybody talks about Star Wars and the hero's journey and all that kind of thing. But it's, it's there's a number of different things that 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 come into play, and uh, you know, it's I guess it's the difference between it's why not everybody's able to write a successful novel. It's why not everybody's famous. Do you know what I mean? There's there's certain people who have the talent. It's why not every film is a classic. There's certain people and certain mixes of people and certain certain times where a film or a tv show or a book crystallizes into that ancient story that we all some part of our brain is yearning for and a film like casino royale did that you know a film like star wars did that you know there's there's certain films that just do it and then if the and then there's every other film basically so that go from a grade of being kind of okay all the way to being shit so there's certain movies that just it's almost like, it's almost like. Um, I guess it's that sort of familiarity, isn't it? You kind of yearn for what you yearn for a pattern, yeah, you know. That's why people, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like why people see fa- see faces in clouds and things like that. It's like our brains want something. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think with the Bond films, there's a delicate balance, isn't there? Because you want to be really on the edge of your seat, but I mean, maybe. As well, if you're a true Bond fan, you want it to be still rooted in the real spy world. And I think we've had two films in a row there, which are pretty much rooted in the real spy world. And, you know, in some ways you can give this, um, you can really commend this film for having almost a From Russia With Love style plot, like it, to some extent, could actually happen. It's just something that's going on in the underworld that the public don't know about. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, I feel, but I do agree with what, what Steve Barry said about there's something lacking there there is a certain blandness to this film and i feel partly rooted in the the villain characters but um i can liken it to the likes of the world's not enough i think i used almost your exact words steve that i feel something lacking about that about one or two of the other later bond films but um 
Yeah, it's a, del- it's a delicate balance. I mean, the, the Bond films have gone. If you look at them as a whole franchise, forgetting the fact there's a reboot, you get maybe like one or two films in a row of real heightened reality, and then it gets to the point they have to go back down to Earth. Or they'll have a certain, you know, after having loads of films with Roger Moore, they then need to have a serious Bond. Then they have a more light-hearted one with Brosnan, they have a more serious one with Craig. So are we going to get like a more light-hearted Bond next, you know? It's all that kind of stuff, but yeah, it's a it's a yeah. delicate balance. Okay, yeah, all right. Let's uh, let's talk about the music. That is something that I think we all agreed that we most. Yeah, we sorry, we're meant to talk about the music. I uh, know, but I, I'm just no. Um, you finished that point, and that's uh, I like. I think I completely agree with you. No, the music is. Uh, I mean, as soon as that song kicked in, I mean that is we haven't. Uh, it's been that it was a proper rock and roll well-produced song I, I really enjoyed it um and seen it this time in context of the films i have heard it a few times and i have liked it and um, listened to it with the, the rest of the songs as a score um but this time it was seen it in context with the titles something really clicked there i think i think it really worked it's funny actually because the first time i heard it i didn't like it so much but i liked it i liked it a lot there mm-hmm. i would say it's grown in me a bit steve since we did our music bond podcast because it didn't quite grab me at that time but I agree with there's something to be said for seeing it with the actual title sequences. There's a certain impact, especially with the just the, the opening bars to it. And I think if you again having that nice little line to lead into it really was nice that mm. Bond and Mr. White getting out of the boot. Yeah. Yeah, and did you notice how it sort of paused on Bond freeze framed? Briefly, yeah, and then yeah. they said to it, which I thought was very, it was almost very 60s. There was something very, and I love the fact that they still they still use the 60s aesthetic for the, the all the arty stuff going on in the background uh, for the, the Bond title sequence. There was a slight return to the dancing woman in the title sequence, yeah. I did notice that as well, but yeah. it, it was very it subtle at least. It was subtle, it wasn't too overtly See, photographic. I, I don't mind it, I don't mind it, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a time and a place like <clears throat> you know there's you, you kind of know what what takes there's a glamour there's a, a excess to Bond films when it comes to alcohol and it used to obviously be cigarettes and women and you know like uh, expensive hotels and clothes and cars and just just an excess you know and <clears throat> excuse me I do think you're kind of dancing women like is part of that kind of seductive excess thing you know i don't i i quite like it i mean i think there's, there's... a classy way of doing it and they they hit it it wasn't yeah, sort of yeah. silhouette I mean, bonds coming out yeah. of a woman's legs type thing <laughs> yeah or like god nipples in the roger Moore title sequences but, that we maybe had to kind of bring well, it back that, down a wee bit there was no, the thing. There was no I mean, woman it, knocking down Lenin's statue or anything like that with a no, you know, And actually, I, I actually thought that was great. That was Goldeneye, wasn't it? No, yeah. that no, that was Goldeneye. Yeah, Hammer yeah. and Sickle. Yeah. No, I, I loved all that, but that's the thing. Like as Steve says, uh, Steve McCullough should say since there's two Steves. Um, there's there's an element where it could it becomes it becomes. I don't think Bond has ever really fully gone into the pornographic, but there would be you know I can, I can detect that it would be like it's almost like. The difference between all music in the world and porno music, do you know what I mean? Like that music itself just sounds terribly seedy, like that kind of seventies style kind of funky sound. And like so there, was face, a, yeah. there was a Family Guy thing that made me laugh, and it was the it was basically like I just caught it randomly. It was on, and 
they were doing the porn music awards and it was just these these scenes were shown oh, yeah. with, and all, all <laughs> the music just sounded exactly the same and then they brought john williams in and there was like a porn scene that john williams had composed and it was just i don't know you have to watch it it's I so think I have the, the day that bond gets into porn music is the day i'll like happily hang up my hat and the the hat stand and be done with Bond. I think the only time I remember that's a term that Steve Barry used when we did our Never Say Never Again podcast, and I think that's the only time where you know Bond really got into sort of like that was like almost a parody, really. But but you know, I, I Gordon, I find it interesting that even when you describe leaving Bond behind, you would use a Bond type maneuver to <laughs> say goodbye, <laughs> throw well, your hat onto I mean, the stand, like, doing a neat, a neat <laughs> toss of my hat onto the hat stand. Like, I mean, it's like when I, goodbye, I walk into the house every day. The first thing you do is you you toss your bowler hat onto the hat stand. Like, unfortunately, I don't have you know the this uh, female secretary in the entrance. But to have some camaraderie with it. It's usually more like just going to the kitchen and like um, see what's for dinner. But yeah, it's a it's a thought, yeah. All right then. Uh <laughs> so the music then. <laughs> yeah, so we we'll, so we like the music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. porno, so it was good. Yeah. All right then. David Arnold's score as well. Uh I thoroughly enjoyed it. There was some great wee little touches there, little motifs. There was a very subtle Bond theme moment as well, wasn't there? Um mm-hmm. During the film, but uh, yeah, a little bit more than Casino Royale, I think. Yeah, so um, starting to maybe to um, kind of take in the Bond identity a bit more, which was important. Well, bear in mind, he's becoming Bond, that's the thing, it's Bond, Bond becoming Bond, shall we say. But um, I I like the the subtle use of the Bond theme, but I also like the subtle use of the, the Casino Royale themes as well. So you had Bond's theme from that. Which was basically the the title song, um, obviously just or- orchestrated uh, from Casino, and then you also had Vespers theme, that little piano-y theme that would come in now and again. Um, I thought it was great. I, th- I I think that's that's a real step forward for for the Bond universe to have that that continuation, and those those were kind of triggering at some of the very best bits of this film. Hmm. And you're getting the sense of Bond being haunted by Vesper in the way that he was haunted by Tracy, which. I don't want to divert too much, but we should have seen that in following Majesties. But it's like, and like in the novels, that's like the two women that really kind of hit Bond hard when when they were taken from him. It is good to see you really get a sense. I mean, great acting by, by Craig in this film, you know, getting the sense of him being haunted. There's quite a lot of references to Vesper, and especially at the end, you can see just how, how much it meant to, to Bond. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to to actually like to avenge her as well, the like the way he was avenging avenging Tracy, or well he should have aven- like been kind of looking to avenge Tracy, mm-hmm. yeah. the way he did in the novels. I think we'll talk about Craig then. Uh, now that you've mentioned him, obviously I think you can tell that he's um he was obviously very buff for the for Casino Royale. I think he uh, I noticed in my research that he kind of slimmed down a little. Um, Primarily just because this film required a hell of a lot of running, and it, it was a lot of work for him. This, I think he did some some of the stunts as well and things like that. So this was a, he got put through the ringer in this film, um, and it, yeah, I think his performance was great as well. Uh, I really, a lot. I mean, I don't know if they enhanced the color of his eyes or something, but he looks. I mean, those are some bloody blue eyes, aren't they? Like really. I think I think it's because he was outside more. Right. That happens. Like uh, blue eyes get that way. 
Oh, Please. see while we're on eyes, here's a, a slight divergence from the topic, guys, but I noticed I don't know if any of you noticed this scene when we did our tomorrow never dies review, right? The last just listen to this, Mr. Stamper. Did you notice he's got two different coloured eyes? I don't think I noticed that. No, no, no. Yeah, he does. I, that's the first simple. time I've ever heard someone say on the subject of eyes. <laughs> it's, I, I spend so much time at the optometrist, I'm just get, that's why I have my like weird dreams and stuff, but but really, I mean, because we said at the time, oh, Mister Stamper needs his little thing to make him more villainous, but he's it was just too subtle. I mean, you know, he they, but um, it's nice when you come across like little nuggets. Like, and it took me several film, several viewings to notice that. Gordon, do you know who else has two different coloured eyes? David Bowie. Yeah, yeah, quite famously. I never Sorry. noticed it, but I knew um, people. I'm sure people have said that either that you're completely winding me up in them. No, it's it's a famous true thing. Yeah. 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 Right. And he's not just using two diff- different contact lens- lenses. He's not doing like a. <laughs> do you do a Wes Borland and have the, like the black contact lens? Sort of total fraud. No, it's basically. Um, so this will be this will be the last diversion I go on here, but. Uh, Bowie got in a fight when he was a kid at school and I think someone put their nail in his eye by accident and it did some damage to it and then oh. ever since then his eye was a different colour one of them Jesus God so God. there you go ladies and gentlemen factoid of the week from Gordon Webster and Francis Murphy <laughs> that's the end of that section um, alright then uh, <laughs> thanks for that guys yeah I, I, I don't know I think Craig was great uh, I don't know what you guys you all agree uh, I think he was fucking terrible by the way <laughs> no, I'm only kidding no, he was. I think he's. I think I've seen him in other things. I've seen him in little roles. Like he was in Sharp as well. He played like a, a snotty officer, um, basically a complete asshole kind of guy. Uh, but I think he, he he plays the cold-hearted professional killer very well. Yeah, and the kind of brooding doesn't talk about his feelings so much, but is flawed and can't handle them. And and like, think you know that idea of a kind of a slightly broken yet incredibly competent man yeah. which which yeah. is a fairly common thing there's a lot of very competent men out there who are completely fucked up mm. do you know they what I mean certain, I think they give at times they've given Craig a bit more of a, a kind of thuggish side as Bond but you can't really kind of fault him as an actor I thought he was brilliant in this yeah. I, I really did yeah okay. I love the Dalton vibes I get off him yeah absolutely yeah that's it exactly um this film didn't have the the sort of romance element that he has had, and even in the, the Dalton films and the, the Living Daylights, it's very much you know it's, at points it feels like a, a romantic film, uh, a drama. But uh, this film didn't really have that. It toned it down. He sleeps with Gemma Arterton's character Fields, and that's like in a few. It's done in one quick second. It's not nothing showy about it. And do you know what's great about that? I just have to say, what I loved about that was it really did feel like just a casual thing that the two of them decided to do, and then she's regretting it, like saying it to him right afterwards. Like, I'm so angry with myself that I allowed this to happen, you know. Mm. But um, I can't remember the last time I had a Bond character who actually regretted sleeping with Bond, or who's ex- who immediately expressed that regret by saying, "I'm so angry with myself." Well, that's it. That's that's exactly what what we probably. But it was a a, a realistic. It was a realistic thing, though. It was. It was like you know, people do things like that. Like, um, say someone goes away on a trip and they, you know, they they sleep with just or or just in that kind of heady thing of going away, whatever. Maybe they have drinks. They sleep with someone. Some people. That's a that's a common conversation. Do you know what I mean? But um, 
I like that. She obviously seemed quite young. Bond's obviously a bit older. She's quite young and maybe a little bit, you know, acts before she thinks kind of person. And obviously she she got drawn into going and getting part, becoming part of Bond's scheme, even though that was... In no, she was only, as M said, her job was to tell Bond to go home. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is part of the problem, Fran. I'll, I'll tell you what I think about Strawberry Fields. I mean, I, I thought she was a good character and like, well acted, but... So Bond is meant to be on the run. I mean, we see this so many times with Daniel Craig's Bond, right? And M has like de- had made sure all his Universal Xbox cards are, you know, deactivated and all this stuff. They want to bring him in. So James Bond, right? International, he's like a renowned womanizer, right? They want to bring him in. So how? So they they have a, an attractive twenty-two-year-old <laughs> um, operative waiting at the airport. Politely yeah. asks him. Um, suppose that she says to him something like she just politely asks him to to go home, like you know, come on. I mean, you know, Bond, this renowned womanizer. When you you would think there would be a couple of guys, but similar to if you think of License to Kill, when um, Bond's um, own people would, were like prepared to open fire on him to bring him in, that is, you know, it's like if you, you I know I sometimes mentioned twenty four. Like we saw the same thing with Jack Bauer. He went rogue at times, and he had to he had to be reined in so they had to use harsh methods but I mean M actually M admits he says about Strawberry Fields after she dies oh she's just a normal worker in an office and she had a duty to just send you home you know if she's just a normal worker like office worker then especially you know she looked like she was basically wearing no clothes apart from a big raincoat and she's just standing waiting for him just I I think she says like I I, I think you we need to take you home Do, do they really think Bond a guy who's absolutely fueled by revenge in this film, do they really think he's just going to say, right, okay? Well, Gordon, I would go as far as to speculate that M knew exactly what Bond was going to do and that it it basically happened. And I think M was annoyed, obviously, that Fields got killed, but she didn't try very hard to stop Bond after he escaped the next time, did, did, did she? She put him in a lift with a bunch of guys that he could take out. Bond is like a nuclear weapon, Clearly, Bond yeah. is Bond is a professional trained, yeah. lethal animal, basically. So I think M knew exactly what was going on at the moment that she said uh, he's on the hunt of something. Better keep an eye on him again. Do you know what I mean? I think she knew, and I think she's she... saying Fields is a honey trap. Then effectively, get him where she wants him. I mean, uh-huh. I think you're doing that thing where you're giving the filmmakers a bit more credit than they probably <laughs> deserve. I don't think where that was the actual well, intention, even, but even, it's an interesting worst... perspective. Well, the worst filmmakers in the world know you don't put anything on the screen that doesn't matter. You don't say anything that doesn't matter. I mean, this was by no means a bad movie. Everything that we saw, heard, and, and witnessed in the movie was there for a reason, you know? And it, I don't think it was trying to make M look like an idiot. No. I think I think a subtle reading of it would be that M knows exactly who her agents are and exactly what they're going to do. Okay. You know what I mean? I, I, I would say that's my, my reading of it. But that's, again, delving into the spy world side of this franchise. That sure. There's always another... There's a subtext, isn't there? On I think M. as well. See with Judy Dench's M. See, since the very beginning of the, the Craig era, she's a very volatile character. She's always moaning about bureaucracy, and she's always complaining about every single film with Craig. It seems she's complaining about his action. I'm not saying it's a criticism. It's kind of funny. She's like... It's like... But you mentioned friend with the defence minister getting minister getting Frederick Grey getting a bit more old and cantankerous. It's like you feel that with Judy Dench's M, which you can't. Maybe it's like a quite a likable feature. She's she was so angry in this film. She was so 
angering Casino Royale, you know. He didn't he maybe didn't get that so much. There was more kind of ordinary dialogue with her and say like tomorrow never dies and world's not enough. It was an well, interesting change for them, I think, since Casino Royale. Yeah, you get the sense that um I I, I take her as the same um that was in the Pierce Brosnan era that she started out as very much a numbers lady, you know, who was, you know, called an accountant disparagingly by people. And then over time, she's realised how limiting the bureaucracy can actually be. But it's, what's interesting is we actually saw not the minister, but his replacement, didn't we, in this film? <laughs> yeah. You know, who's like, who, you know, so we got, and she, she said to him, you know, hello, minister, and all this. So there was shades of the old minister. Could you imagine if he had somehow still stayed alive all the way through to this, and they'd brought him back? <laughs> yeah, it felt it like a more realistic approach to the minister relationship with them, where she's been summoned and has to kind of explain herself and these kind of things. I think I, I kind of liked that actually. I think actually I liked all Judy Dench in this film, um, and what they mm-hmm. did with her. I was worried when I read that they were going to sort of use her more because I was worried that it was going to be how I feel they do it in the next couple of films where they start putting her in danger and she's or or the MI six team start to become more involved and I always worry when they're like in the field with Bond. But it was nothing like that. It was more What it, M running down the street with a gun and all that. Yeah. It's one thing when M goes out in the field and he, maybe M belongs more in an office, but you could remember how it was you get films in the Roger Moore era, like um, Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. It's like the entire, the just because Bond, this one agent, is in, is in a mission at the other side of the world, the entire department seems to transfer to wherever Bond is. Like the whole yeah. Yeah, Money Penny and Q and M, they all go out to to Brazil because Bond's there in the Amazon, or they all go out to Cairo because Bond's there. But yeah, I think I feel um. M belongs more in London. I think it's okay to have like one or two films. And it, do you know it's interesting, Steve? We'll see. We'll talk about this more when we get to Skyfall. But the the continuation novel, Colonel's Son, M actually gets kidnapped. And although it was never officially acknowledged, I wonder if that um, might have been taken from from that book. You know, that's a that's kind of new territory. That would have been new territory back in nineteen sixty eight for sure mm-hmm. when it was written. Yeah. Um, it was I, I kind of mentioned it in my intro, but the way she lectured Bond in the hotel room after Fields was found dead, I thought was just he took her. She took him to pieces. The way she turned to him and went, "How many is that now?" Which is obviously a reference to the number of women that over the series Bond has slept with, who have then almost immediately died, and just the way she. It was I think it was it was the way that particular bit of dialogue was written. But she took him to pieces, and I thought that was—I thought that was fantastic, and it was—it was well delivered by uh, by Judy Dench. Yeah. But that particular scene hit me. I think I was like, "Wow, that was that was excellent." Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Um, I think that the writing is is relatively strong in this film. I think that's one of the things that's quite pleasing to say. We've had so much criticism of the writing. Bizarrely, it seems bizarre that we're saying that in a film where it was, you know, the writer strike and all these kind of draft problems and Daniel Craig having to help out and things like that. It's yeah, it, it wasn't obvious from that side of things, other than the the, the action kind of took over a little. Yeah. Uh, so it was the the dialogue. What you what you would imagine the writing is the dialogue was fantastic. It was minimal, but it was fantastic. What I think. I think the film suffered from having a lack of writers was the direction of the film. Because yeah. I imagine the writers will craft it from start to finish. And the fact that it had no di- no direction probably suggests that 
um, that was a result of the the lack of sort of writing team, or well, they would perhaps have... sort of conjoined writing team. Yeah, they would, have, they would have given it another couple of passes. There would have been another couple of passes on the script, and it would have been, they would have honed it. They would yeah. have, yeah. you know, it would have, it would have had all the elements we saw, but there would have been waiting added I think to one of them. I'd read Purvis and Wade, the, the the sort of main Bond scriptwriters, had done a draft, an earlier draft, and it was submitted within two hours of when the legal writer strike started so like you couldn't write any more than so they had two like they got it their their draft done two hours before it but then after that they weren't able to really finesse it and things like that and it was so that's where craig and the director mark uh foster had to try and kind of tackle it so it's yeah it it does show of it you can see it in the, the in the sort of direct the lack of direction really but um, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be going into that. Uh, let's tackle the villains then. What's what's your thoughts on uh, Dominic Green as the he suppose mm. the main villain? He's all right. His name sounds like a politician, which kind of annoyed me right the way through. I just kept imagining a a sort of MP, Dominic Green. I don't know. It's do you mean by like a guy that um that travels half the country during a lockdown, like half the lines of the country, and claims he. He had to do it for family reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, just a very low-key name. But I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's purely a sort of ridiculous observation of his name. As a character, he was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I, I like the fact that he wasn't completely over the top. I mean, that scene, we, we see him right at the start, where he's kind of in that harbour with um, sort of living women, and the way he kind of leads her to the edge of the water, and there's a dead body already in there, and he's kind of threatening her very, very sort of calmly and psychopathically. That sets you up for what kind of person he is. He's just sort of clearly insane. And I, I quite, I like that every so often. The fact that he was just sort of low key, but threatening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought he was, he was sort of like a lower level, uh, lower level manager in this organization who was, you know, he was snake like enough to get in there. But obviously not so completely world dominatingly megalomaniacal that he could reach the top, mm-hmm. you know. So I he, he, if that is a sort of long term goal, almost sort of idea that he's the the person in this film is almost as you say almost middle management. So once Bond defeats him, that gives you someone else even higher up to try and start tackling to give this. Um, sort of reboot, if you like, a, a series kind of feel. Whereas if Bond immediately kills the top guy in the organisation two films into this reboot, there's almost nowhere left to go. So I wonder to what extent if that was a... Well, well bear a, in mind we already had we already had um, Dominic Rab. oh sorry, I mean Dominic Green's <laughs> uh, boss escape at the start, Mr. White. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. So, that, so I suppose they're, they're maybe hopefully thinking continuation. I might be giving them too much credit here, but they there might be a sort of element of continuation on their mind. Well, I think yeah. so. I mean, if you look at the way Casino Royale ended, the way this started, the the, the plot threads left open. I mean, the fact that the he you know Green says, "Oh, if you if you don't sign this, the people who I work for will do this." He's not saying he'll do it himself. You know, it's like Daddy will come and and get you if you don't do that you know that kind of thing the teacher will come yeah that sort of way but it's that kind of you know you know there's some shadowy thing in the background that's worse than than anything but i mean you've got 
you, you, you kind of see the structure of villainy in this. You've got henchmen, you've got the general who wants to take over the country, who is subservient to a middle management villain, who is subservient to his own bosses, which is exactly, and we all know it, and we're all going to find it out very soon in the news, I'm sure, exactly how the real world works well, right yeah. now. Mm, yeah, I mean, like even more so than, than the craziest film you could ever see. So I think it's good in the sense that even way back in 2008... We were getting films that were that were hinting at this sort of thing. Um, interestingly enough, another movie that did that was Robocop. Weirdly enough, um, corporate interests taking over towns, stirring up violence so they could privatise police forces. I like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt, it's a real world-esque plot uh, that, that you could believe in. Um, and I think the villain fitted in with that. He wasn't too... He didn't have any noticeable scars or, you know, any sort of kind of weird facial things going on that you tend to see the villains or with well, weird you, bizarre clothes or anything like that. It was you, a guy. Uh, you kind of saw his weirdness at the end, though. See, when he was fighting Bond and he was screaming, hmm. waving the axe around, you kind of saw the, you know, there was a side, obviously a side to this guy that was a bit out of control. What's weird, we never got, well, not weird, interesting, I suppose. We never, it's, I don't know how many Bond villains have, have not had an on-screen death. It was just mentioned in conversation that he died. We didn't actually see him dying as such. Obviously, we know he was probably. Could you imagine what that would be like? Just hours of flowing <laughs> him through the desert. <laughs> yeah, that was the camera lingering on him as he slowly dies in the de- You know, yeah. and then again, he shot, I suppose. But yeah, it would have been a very long sequence. Yeah, because okay. because yeah. he got twenty miles. It would have taken him. Bond said to get to the point he would drink the oil. Mm-hmm. So like you would have seen him just sitting there thinking, "Ugh, I'm just going to drink this oil now." And then suddenly those guys come and shoot him. That is like you got to think that is one of the worst ways to go, isn't it? Like that's horrendous. Well. <laughs> It's one of the worst. I mean, obviously, fire's got to be up there. It was yeah. interesting. But, um, maybe we'll do a feature or worst Bond death uh, villain deaths. Well, you go. could actually do you could do what my ex colleague and work did, um, and actually, like, he was a guy that used to get things mixed up when he would speak about them in the office. And I remember one time he said he was asking, he was trying to, he was asking, he basically just out of the blue said, "What's the most popular diseases?" <laughs> and everybody kind of looked at him as if popular and obviously he meant most common yeah <laughs> you know what i mean but to him the number of people with it like the word for that was popular but yeah yeah so that we have to find a feature name that's just as crazy as that great word well, of mouth diseases yeah see, one um one good thing about the way that that green went was he was like a lot of bond villains he was sort of um killed by his own dream in a way because well no I suppose it was more he was using, he wanted to dominate the water supply, but oil was mentioned, he was killed by the oil. Do you know what I, I mean? Don't, I don't know if that... No he, wasn't, no, he wasn't killed by the oil, sorry, but I suppose he was meant to be, maybe died of, like, exhaustion or dehydration, but the fact that oil played a part was sort of appropriate. It maybe didn't have the same impact because you didn't see it, but, yeah, I mean, I feel, on Dominic Green, I think um, there was a real nastiness to him, and I think... Uh, Steve McCall, what you were—I really—I was going to say the same thing. I agree what you said about on the that harbour scene when you first see the guy, and he's just so nasty to Camille. Even like when she turns, you see marks in her back as though there's like scars. You wonder if he's whipped her, or it might be maybe someone um, close to the general when her, you know, her family was killed and all that. But there's not I burn mean, scars, Gordon, and that's why she was so scared of the fire. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, it reminded me kind of of Lupe and License to Kill us kept doing, but 
this, I got the sense that she was so frightened of Green and he had that really nasty, real kind of hateable quality. And I, I felt that a bit with the general as well. General is a Madrano. He was um, a real hateable character, especially sort of like swaggers around in his military regalia, a, a failed, overthrown general. I feel he could have been developed a bit more. Green, I feel let's, not, let's not forget the literal rape scene. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a see, that's a, we'll see, also that, Fran, right? See with that, um, because it's like it's a nice twist how how Green seems to he's changed the deal. He's um he's like kind of t- got trying to force the general into an agreement that it's not going to suit him. So he adds that twist. He kind of turns on the general. But I just don't get it. the general kind of leaves, and the next thing on his mind, I'll go into a room and rape the nearest woman. It just is quite weird how it just goes from that to, unless I missed something. It's amazing yeah, what it's amazing what, what a wounded ego can crave. Yeah. You know, um particularly a man like that. I think that was his reputation, wasn't it? He basically was a if you notice that when he was talking to women he was very polite to them and very charming to them on the outside when other men weren't being nice to them at all. Like the women came to ask the women he raped or tried to rape was saying, you know, would you like, is there anything I can do to help you? Would you like a drink or something? And he says, oh, what a lovely yeah. question, yes. You know, the other guy says, no, go away. You know, so the other guy's being openly cruel, but this general, he's the kind of guy who, who, who behind the closed door is a, a monstrous figure, yeah. you know? Yeah, see, that maybe makes him, that gives him an extra nastiness, the fact he's charming. I think it definitely but... does. <laughs> yeah, because, I... see, I was talking about <laughs> Colonel Sun, I'll return to it again, because the main villain in that, it was like that. He was actually, he was really actually nice to Bond and treated him well, but he tortured him more brutally than any other Bond villain, you know? Yeah. So it gave, it gave it that extra edge, you know? Similar to that. Well, I'll tell you something interesting, right? There's a number of different things that people, you know, there's books that have come out, studies that have been done, and there's some interesting stuff about the idea that everybody is capable of doing terrible things but that we just don't really like to acknowledge it about ourselves. But that's what makes us uncomfortable when we see these things, is that we can understand that as much as we can reach for almost divine nobility, there's, there's as they call it, the scum at the bottom of your heart. You know, that, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the people that lived in Germany during the world, like Second World War, a lot of them, like the statistical probability that they would do things to save themselves that were unspeakably bad was quite high. You know, so I think that you know that's where these characters are well written in the sense that we look at them and we we see the we're made uncomfortable because we see the the potentiality for that sort of behaviour not only in people that we know but mm-hmm. you know depending on the circumstances of our own lives. You know, and there's some psychologists who say that in order to avoid ever becoming like that, you have to first face it, you have to first acknowledge it. So I think. I would say the fact that that sort of thing makes us uncomfortable isn't just morally good, but it's probably it says that we, in some way, are facing it when we watch it. I think it's quite an important thing for people to acknowledge, you know, when they see these sorts of characters. Another, um, well, I don't know if he's meant to be an actual villain, but the see that guy with the moustache. I think his name's Beam, who is uh, in the CIA. I don't. I got the sense of his Felix Leiter's boss. I I really couldn't stand him as a character. Well, he's exactly the kind of person I'm talking about. There's a guy who works for the CIA who is enabling the most monstrous activities yeah. imaginable yeah. because because it's good for his career. That's it. In fact, that is precisely what I just talked about. Yeah. yeah. That, 
that is he was a very subtle very subtle villain i suppose but i don't know if he doesn't he's not certainly not in the classical bond villain it was just a very realistic character i suppose unfortunately we did that as you did, there is that isn't there just well, a stereotypical would... bent cop well um, but kind of yeah amplified so if he worked his way up to chief of uh south america yeah and i'd suddenly gone you know what i'm gonna be complicit in all this and there's probably a bit of a a wager in it for him yeah um i thought that was that was a really good idea and the way that it kind of almost dragged felix lighter into the bad team to the extent that you weren't quite sure at some points what side he was on i think you always kind of know deep down that his bonds mate and that he's on the good side but putting felix lighter on that side of the sort of good bad axis was a particularly clever move, actually. It was the, it was it was him that did it. That particularly sort of low key big cop villain. I quite like the, the grey like, area. Yeah, like he he uh, looked he looked pissed. Like he just like pissed you know, off. I, I lighter, yeah, light. I find see Jeffrey Wright's lighter. I, I really like him, but he seems permanently angry. Yeah, like he. And it, he just did but I gotta say, if that guy was see if that guy was my boss. That Bean character, I would be quitting the CIA or asking for a transfer or something well, like that. It's good, it's good to know that you've got that moral. Uh, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> I'll just I, give up your whole career. Did, did, you know, I'd actually, I'd, I'd recommend to all of you, to if you're interested in characters like that, if you read a book called The Banality of Evil. Have you read that, McCall? Uh, I don't think I have, no. Because I, I, I would imagine it's a book that would float around the BBC. You know, people would be... You know, like it's it's um by ha- it's Hannah Arendt, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's about a guy called Eichmann. I won't say anything more than that, but it's basically about how someone, you know, like that, like this character we're discussing, someone who's got a shirt and tie on, works within the the system. You know, it's a real life story. Okay, real life or a real life book, but it, yeah, it's it's sometimes those are the most hateful people. I think because they're 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 not the villain, but they're they're benefiting from it. He doesn't get his comeuppance in this film, does he? He gets fired. Did he? I, I, that obviously, yeah, my... Felix Leiter got promoted into his job. Oh, that's right. There you go. See, that, oh, yeah. there's a moment where I've obviously my mind has wandered because I, I had forgotten that. Uh, right, okay. Uh, I think, is there anything else? Maybe quickly on Mattis then. What, uh, Mattis' return. What, it was quite, there's a decent few scenes with Bond and Mattis. What do we, what do we think of that? Well, he was fridged, wasn't he? <laughs> there we go. Say. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, he wasn't... Well, was he? I mean, Bond went back and needed his help, but he needed to die. That, that was kind of Bond's tragic moment for the, this time around this film, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, he looked like a, he looked like flipping Bambi when he was lying there in Bond's arms, with big eyes looking up at Bond. Do you know what I mean? Like this kind of... It was strange, wasn't it? Seeing that such a sincere Please stay moment. with me. You know, please stay with me, don't leave. You know, this, you know... Just yeah, I mean it was good. It was good, but I mean it was very functional. It was very much for a a purpose. You could see it. It was, it was a little bit too 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 on the nose, I think, for me. But he was. I enjoyed his scenes anyway. But yeah, I, I like him. I, I think I liked it. What were you going to say, Gordon? Well, just the the character Mathis actually appeared in the from Russia with Love novel. It might have been brief, but I thought I think he's another one of the real likable Bond allies, and it, it was a it was a quite a powerful scene when he died weird how Bond just kind of threw him into the, the skip but I don't know if it was a, just a sense of Dominic Green had already sort of it was obvious that he was kind of in control of the police so Bond must have thought whatever he tried even if he just kind of had 
admitted that uh, someone else shot him. The police wouldn't believe him, so he had to go in the run anyway. I don't know, but it was, I just felt that was really striking how he just threw him into the skip. Well, that was and cold. Just, that was really cold. <laughs> for, just for the relationship they had, it was a really, it really stuck out to me. Was, I don't know. I mean, do you guys think you're going to give a shit when you're dead? I mean, I like I, I don't see myself getting hurt. Uh, what happens to me after I die? Like I think Bond said, Mathis wouldn't care. Mathis operated in the the spy world. I don't think he would have given a shit. Probably. I mean, not. he was. It's good it that literally he was able to justify it. <laughs> well, no, I I don't. It, after having such a heartfelt moment, it was a kind of like. Well, I mean, what's Bond's choices? I know. Is he going uh, to phone the police that yeah. just tried to kill him and say, "Well, oh, we've got a body here." You know, is he? What's he going to do? I mean, is he going to stick around and make the funeral arrangements? I mean, Bond has to do something with him, doesn't he? It made sense. I mean, it's the only appropriate thing to do with with. I mean, you could have left him lying in the street there, and he would have been eaten by dogs or whatever running around anyway. Hmm. So at least if he's in the skip, he's in the skip. You know, could have phoned them. Maybe she could arrange something. Maybe uh, maybe <laughs> they weren't on talking terms at that point. I suppose not. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, it was strange. All right then. Uh, I think we are good to. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about before we go to the rating? I was just going to say one, well, quick thing, Steve. That I really like the opera scenes I mentioned earlier. I wonder, there's maybe a sort of fine line here. Question one: If all these people were talking in the opera, would they not be noticed a bit, uh, or maybe with the music covered up? You know, you kind of be quiet in an opera. I'm not sure. I did really like how Bond turned the tables on the villains and how he exposed them by them all walking out. But question two is, when they all walked out en masse like that, are they not stupidly making it too obvious who they are? Yeah, well, that was the the point, wasn't it? Um, but I suppose, yeah, it was, wasn't it? So there could have but, been one that was really smart that decided, I'm going to stay put. I well, he get, he... did that, didn't he? But I think all the others walked out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, that that's, maybe that's what a redraft might have made it, I don't know. I don't know, maybe more obvious or something. Uh, okay, yeah. All right, let's get to the rating then. Uh, Gordon, let's start with you then. What's your rating for this film? I must spend the good books today. You keep going to me first. I appreciate that. <laughs> I man. just try to change it up because I usually that. always go to Steve for some reason. Yeah, first, so. yeah. Oh, you make me feel good, Steve. Thanks. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed the stripped down feel of Quantum Fleming-esque. Um, I really like the sets. That's one thing I've not mentioned um, especially the the opera. I mean, some of that um, must have been sets. I would imagine. Um, but I really love the cave set. That was cool when when Bond suddenly discovers that. I just love the lighting there. Him and Camille discover the all this these reserves of water, and and the way at the end, I think, is a weirder building as it was inside the interior was nice, and it maybe harks back to some of the great Bond sets of old. Um, love the score, like like we were talking about. Especially like when he leaves the hotel after he goes in the run when when finds Strawberry Fields dead, I, I felt maybe it was a bit kind of cheap the whole um her covered in oil on the bed. I like throwbacks, but I don't know if that's maybe going a bit too far in terms of the the Golden Girl from Goldfinger. But I mean, I obviously I do like the kind of classic Bond feel in certain films. We got quite a lot of that. We got um in terms of um the, I mean I really like the ending to this film actually. I, I enjoyed how. You've got it kept switching between like Bond up against Green and then Camille up against Medrano, like her um, avenging him. 
her avenging what happened in her youth and there's that feeling I agree with Fran like about the there's a real kind of there's a real thrill to the, the burning building you feel like all hope is lost and Bond and, and Camilla kind of counting as if they're um, about to die and then suddenly it's like old school Bond uses his wits you know, I think he notices that it's some kind of gas canister and shoots it and that's their way out you know that's Again, that's classic Bond. I mean, there's a lot to enjoy about this film, and I didn't, I didn't really uh, get a chance to say too much about Camille, but I think um, she, I thought she was a really good character, and it was kind of refreshing how there wasn't any real proper romance between her and Bond because there's no need for that to be with every single female character, and we had that. There was one of the the, the Fleming books had that as well. I think it was Moonraker, and that it's good to just every so often have a change up with that. And it's, I think it's also because with Camille, you've got like her own. Um, personal score to settle it gives her that extra weight to it you know what I mean because I, I said with the likes of Christmas Jones and the world's not enough we maybe needed something more like a personal angle I think we got that with Camille like, with Fran, you're, Fran you're making a lot of noise M- mute your microphone me Fran how, how is it making a lot of noise you're just everything it's, you're doing you're moving you're the bottle everything else is like god's sake stop moving about it's really? the movement on that mic it's the wire it's, you get a lot of um, sort of noise and feedback from it weird because you kept moving positions it's just everything you're doing is like amplified and because yours is so loud for some reason it's like (laughs) drowning everything out that's so weird hang on i'll put it here hopefully that's better i I thought you were just getting me muted when you're not usually speaking anyway yeah well i mean i've done similar i was kind of moving around earlier on and it wasn't making noise but i didn't have it muted either right so all right i don't know what causes it okay sorry gordon let you finish i I kept thinking your t-shirt friend said Take Death, then I thought it was Take Darth, and I was like, is it Tall Darth or something? Tall Darth and Handsome. <laughs> nice t-shirt. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I really, I thought Camille was a, a great leading female character, and one of the best ones recent years, because we had a few kind of weaker ones towards the end of the in here, so the fact you've got Vesper Lind and then you've got her, I even, I feel Olga Kurilenko, the first, like the second or third time I saw this film, I felt like, because I couldn't remember the film, I thought she's got that femme fatale look and it actually took me by surprise that she was an ally. And But I think there's something really, I think she's a great actress, there's something kind of believable about her. Yeah, I, there's a lot to enjoy about this film. I think, I agree with you guys, I mean, what, what maybe lets it down is some of the action sequences are far too fast and especially in the first third of the film, there's too many many of them, it's just like Crash Bang Walk, where you want to see Bond there maybe being more of a, a spy, do you know what I mean? And um, there's like that scene where he's, I thought it was well done when he's having to jump between the balconies and one of the initial fight sequences, but then you've got that sky, he's like falling, free fall with Camille from the plane. It's just, he he seems to just be able to kind of like use momentum to fall towards her who's got a parachute and it's just I feel that's not too believable and I feel another the the whole thing with Strawberry Fields like I said like her being put in place to stop Bond was a bit thin to me and another thing I thought was a bit thin was early on the film The Harbour scene which started off well Bond just kind of pounds in there and just starts chasing after um Camille and the general and it's like Bond is just he's meant to be a spy and he's basically early on in the film he's exposing himself to both the villains immediately why why does he need to do that why does he need to chase them you know it's like you know be like the early Bond throw a Homer device onto the speedboat or something like that or into one of the villains pockets act like a spy don't just kind of 
thrash through things. It was a bit that was a bit too much to me, especially when he exposed himself. And I, I do feel the villains were there was a slight blandness to this film, and you know Dominic Green was a bit bland. He's, there was a psychotic side to me. He was all right, you know. He's not one of my like my top Bond villains. And the likes of the general maybe could have done with a bit more development, but I mean, if you all add all that up, um, it's uh, it's quite a likable film, and it gripped me for most of it. There was points in the action sequences I, I zoned out a little, but I would uh, I would say it's about three and a half. You know, it's like there's if there wasn't too many um, quick cuts in the action. And he was more of a spy, we began more towards a four. So I've given like three and a half to the films like Legs of Moonraker, Man of the Golden Gun, you know, it's um, there's not enough kind of charming features about this film to sort of get it over that mark for me. So but it's, it's one, you know, I'll I'll, I'll definitely watch it again. Yep. Okay. Steve, what's your what's your thoughts? I don't know whether to feel gutted that he comes to me second rather than first. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, joking. Now you've upset Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't keep us all happy. God, it's a tough point. How do you think I feel I'm last? Yeah. <laughs> You're not getting a rating. Charming. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How you doing, Steve? Uh, right, I am also going three and a half. This film for me was kind of full of diamonds in a sea of rough, I think is the best way of describing this. I loved the, as I said, I loved the music right the way through this film. I loved a lot of the individual conversations and the way that the characters are feeling a lot more 3D than perhaps they did in some of the sort of middle films, particularly around the Brosnan era where they kind of came and went, you didn't really know anything about them. I really enjoyed Daniel Craig in this. I love the sort of brutal Timothy Dalton vibes that we're getting from Daniel Craig. I think I'm going to enjoy him as Bond. I love the sort of revenge feel of this film particularly. Um, I love that this film I love that this film made me laugh. Um the one line that properly got me was when they arrived in La Paz and Fields go to check them into that really terrible hotel and says, Oh, it, it mixes it, it fits with our legend, we're teachers on sabbatical. So Bond walks into the really expensive hotel and goes, Oh hi, we're teachers on sabbatical and we've just won the lottery. That properly floored me. I thought was that was a genius bit of writing. So yeah. there's so many little bits of this film that were fantastic, but in among the sort of sort of overarching problems with this film are one, the cinematography, the way it was cut and pasted together, the the quick editing, the point of view camera that was just all over the place. There was no stability to it whatsoever, to the point that parts of it were just unwatchable. That combined with, as I've mentioned, the complete lack of any coherent plot. There was so much going on that nothing was weighted. One particular storyline didn't stand out. So by the time you get to the end of the film, all the loose ends have been tied up, but you don't really understand what's just happened. There was nothing, there wasn't a, a particular storyline that stood out. And those two big overarching features kind of envelop the whole film in which there are little bits and pieces that really stand out. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't like the fact that you need so much prior knowledge to enjoy this. You can't just sit back and watch it, you need to really concentrate, you need to kind of push through the distractions to really get a grasp of what's actually happening within the storyline. And that kind of ruined it slightly for me. So overall, I am giving this, uh, yeah, three and a half. Okay, three and a half. Fran, thoughts? Okay, <clears throat> well, I would feel similarly, I think, in terms of 
the film having excellent moments and then moments that were not quite so good. I think the the main problem is that there wasn't an A plot, basically. There was just a series of, of plots that were going on concurrent. I like the fact that it was a carry it was a continuation of Casino Royale, the, the plot there to a certain extent. Um I liked well, I liked a lot of things about it. you know, um, some of the I like the cold hearted brutal bond that we got to see at certain points of the film. Um I, I will just be saying a lot of the things the guys have said already if I go into much more detail. Um and p- possibly a lot of things I've already said as well. So I'm going to just shoot straight through to saying that it would be three and a half stars for me too. Um, and I, the only thing I would add is that this isn't one I would stick on if I came in and had, have, had a few beers or whatever and wanted to watch a Bond film. This wouldn't be one I would just stick on, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. It's one that's better watched as part of the the overall movies if you wanted to do a run, basically. So three and a half as well. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to actually go four for this one. Um, you just had to be different, didn't you? Yeah, exactly, you know. That's just host privilege, you know. Um, but I I, I think there, there's things that I like about it that edge it above the three and a half. Um, for me, Daniel Craig is the standout brilliant in this film, I think, because you can tell that he went through the, the ringer doing the film, but also I think his performance matched that um i think he was able to to really uh i think this version of bond i'm really enjoying it it is like the dalton one but it's even more it's more modern and it's just a shame that that i don't think the film's cutting style especially at the start we've already mentioned it was able to kind of to match it i think that's that is the letdown for me there was moments where i was losing my the the geography of the scene i was like what's happened there that was really fast that car what what happened who's who's that guy what's going on um but it was brutal, it was violent, uh, I do like that in films, and so there was a lot of spectacle, and I think, you know, the set decorations, I know Gordon, you touched on it as well, M's office, I think they had a Ken Adam feel to it, which I kind of like, there was little callbacks, yeah, I think the Goldfinger one is a little too on the nose, um, but uh, yeah, so I, I like those things about it, villains are a bit bland, but they, they did fit the underworld tone of the film, so I can't really mark them down too much on that. Um, I do think I, w- I would have liked to be more depth to even more of the humanizing of Bond, seeing him really getting st- absolutely uh, steaming, falling over and really struggling with the death of Vesper and kind of bringing it home. I think they could have really pushed that side of it. But it is a brisk film, so maybe if you have too much of that, does it make it too long? There's sacrifices have to be made. But overall, that's, I'd give it the four. It's not a film that it's a kind of film that you kind of forget about after you've watched it, but I did enjoy it when I watched it. Like it's not going to really last in my memory. I feel like I'd need to watch it a few more times to really to kind of oh yeah, that's that, that's this film. But yeah, it's still still fun, still a four star film, and there was no points where I was cringing or you know really embarrassed that we've you know from odd humor choices. It is quite for me. It was quite a humorless film. I didn't find myself laughing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, maybe they just didn't land the same with me, but yeah, overall, still still enjoyed it. And Daniel Craig's performance for me was a standout. But uh, four star film. So uh, that to me, this is the film that I mean. I know Spectre is also seen as a bit of a kind of mixed reviews, but we may have been over because I was expecting something really quite poor for this film. So I mean, I'm actually pleasantly surprised 
that this viewing was as enjoyable as I thought as it was because this is the one that everyone kind of like oh yeah Quantum of Solace it is seen as it's kind of forgotten or it's it's known as generic and bland or a, a really because it's so compared to Casino Royale um, that's the one thing that it, it really struggles with it does it does not match Casino Royale nearly in any any shape other than probably the score the score is is fantastic and the theme song Right, that is us done then for the 22nd Bond film. We have only got two more films to go. Unless, of course, you don't count No Time to Die, but like we're not counting that. So two more to go. Unbelievable. We're about to watch, we'll be watching Skyfall next, a film I've only seen once in the cinema and did really enjoy. At the time, I actually believed that that was my favourite of the Daniel Craig films, but after even watching Casino Royale, uh, that one's overtaken it again. But I'm intrigued to come back to Skyfall. Um, so yeah we'll get that penciled in thanks guys for joining me this has been fun Uh, we'll see you next time for Skyfall bye 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 thank you bye 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 bye